Good morning, all. That's a brave girl, huh? Can you say brave? brave. Yes, she's very brave. Well, we're talking about how we can be brave these uh, couple of weeks. And today we went to uh, look at the warrior King David and some of the mighty men that he surrounded himself with, what we might learn from them. Let me just remind you that uh, next week, beginning next week, we're going to start a new series called The Grave Robber. We're going to study the Gospel of John and the miracles of Jesus through the Lenten season all the way through Easter. So for seven weeks, beginning next week, we're going to consider the miracles of Jesus. And I hope you'll open the Gospel of John uh, this next week and begin reading there and kind of study ahead so that when we gather next week and the following weeks that you'll be prepared for that. We're very excited about the notion that Jesus can make the impossible possible. You believe that? I believe it, that Jesus can make the impossible possible. And so we'll be considering that important thought. Again, today we're going to look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23 from the life of King David. I'm going to read for us verses 8 through 23. Now let me just qualify this text before I read it to us this morning. This is a time period which is 1,000 years before Jesus, 1,000 B.C., this is not a Christian era. And so David, while a man after God's own heart, is operating with all of the light that he's been given at this point. So Jesus is a thousand years from actually living on the earth. And so when you think about a Christian worldview or Christian values, you don't see uh, a lot of those being employed by this tribal people, these warriors. Again, the 12 tribes of Israel are loosely confederated at this point. The nation isn't even together as one, one complete unit. And so in the spring of the year, it's tribal warfare. And they're intermingled within the 12 tribes of Israel, other Gentile tribes, Philistines, Amalekites, uh, others that are present here. And so if you're looking for lowly Jesus, meek and mild in this text, you won't find him. Uh, this is the wild, wild west uh, with guns blazing. And so just so you get some context there. So once you understand that historical context, there is much we can learn from the association that David has with these men and the application to our own lives. So if you'll uh, turn, if you have your Bibles, to 2 Samuel 23. If not, we'll project these words on the screen for you. I'll begin reading at verse 8, and I'll invite you to stand to honor God's word. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Jasheb Bathshebeth, a Tahakmanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men, whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the uh, Hoyite, as one of the three mighty warriors. He was with David when they taunted the Philistines, gathered at Pasadamum for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. But Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Hararite. And when the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field he defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Now, if you're an aspiring preacher, verse 12 is a great, you can preach there all day, a beautiful three-point sermon right there in verse 12. Took his stand, defended the pea patch, 
the Lord gave him a great victory. Just go on and on for hours. Three points right there. That was free, just free of charge. Verse 13. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Remember, I referenced this story last week, that these guys go for water at the risk of their lives. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this. He said, is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives and David would not drink it? Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zeruiah, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed. And so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Now that's our sub-theme today. In a pit with a lion on a snowy day. How many of you know that's a bad day right there? That's not, yeah, yeah. Nobody wants that. He struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaniah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Now may God inspire us today through this important story. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Now let me make this statement. If you don't take home anything else with you today, get this statement, all right? Here it is. Tough times never last, but tough people do. Tough times never last, but tough people do. We're talking about how, how to be brave. We talked about last week about how to have courage, to be encouraged. And this is a state of mind, an attitude of heart that God calls each of his people to be prepared for. So before you ever get to a moment in your life, here's, my, here's what I want to say. Before you ever get to a moment when you are in a pit with a lion on a snowy day, you're going to have to be prepared before that moment comes. There's going to have to be previous lessons, previous work of God in your life, in our lives, to prepare us, to equip us, to enable us to deal with circumstances that are harsh and difficult and tragic in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to just look at the lives of these mighty men of, of God, many, mighty men of valor under David's command, and see what we might learn from them and make the application to our own lives so that we might be emboldened and empowered and encouraged to be followers of Jesus. Here's the first thought that I want you to get, and that is that these men understood the value of being surrounded by people of great stature. Surrounded by people of great stature. Now, these are men of honor. Remember, loyal to the king. They're loyal to Israel. They're loyal to God. These are men of courage, men of faith. 
Their, their humble self-sacrifice is evident in the way they are risking their lives on a regular basis to the glory of God and the honor of their king. They, they are virtuous. They are righteous. They are brave. They are noble. They are sacrificing. They, they've got the right stuff about them, and, and we're inspired by that. We, we rehearsed the, the story last week of the three guys who hear David asking about the water of the well at Bethlehem, and they risk their lives, so they get back with the water. David says, this, this is water, but it might as well be your blood. You risked your lives to get this water. He, I know you've, you've secured the water in an attempt to honor me and please me, but he said, I'm going to honor you by pouring it out on the ground. And so you see this kind of virtue on display among these people. Now, here's, here's the point I want to make. These are the kind of people that you want to surround yourself with. These are the kind of people you want to hang with who are obedient, who are, who are submitted to God's best plan for their life, who are willing to give of themselves in a sacrificial way in the lives of others. They, they come to a place of prominence in this text, these men, because of their own merit. They haven't been handed this status. They haven't, they, they haven't inherited it from their father. But they have earned this respect and this status by their own merit, by their own quality of their lives. And so these are the kind of people you want to hang with. Some were leaders of hundreds. Some were leaders of thousands. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew just best how to put them in the structure. Some of them were great solo performers, but they each found their place and they each found their influence and their status because they were willing to hang together. Now listen, we live in a grim world. We do. We live in a difficult world. And every day we're exposed to people either at school or next to us in the office or on the job somewhere and we realize these folks have need. And some of them are apart from God. They don't live for God. And they, they need hope found in Jesus Christ. And they, their lives lack that. They've been wounded and damaged and battered by life. And you find yourself realizing the dysfunction of the people all around you. And here's my point. While it's important to care for and love and pray for and, and offer hope to people around you in need. That's, that's the call of God, of course, for all of us. We cannot, we cannot allow our lives to be totally absorbed by people who are only needy around us. Someone speculated, suggested that human relationships come in at least these three forms. One kind of relationship are the ones that are constantly taking from you. In your relationship with them, uh, you, are, you are losing energy. You are losing vitality. Uh, they, they suck life out of you. That's the nature of the relationship. There's a constant pull away from you in that relationship. Then there are relationships that are kind of break even. It's kind of give and take. I offer energy to them. They offer some back to me. And then there are relationships where you're just receiving all the time. And when you're in their presence, uh, it's, you know, you're taking from them, but you're benefiting from that relationship. And my point simply is this that we must intentionally cultivate relationships in our lives that are more than just those relationships that pull from us. We have to have mutual relationships and we have, to, we have to cultivate relationships with people who are higher than we are, better than we are, smarter than we are, uh, farther down the road of life than we are, 
who've been where we want to go, and we need to intentionally align ourselves with those kinds of people. Let me talk to young people for a moment. Make peer pressure work for you. Make it work for you. Peer pressure is going to exist in your life no matter what you do, who you hang with. Someone said said it this way, that you tell me who you run with, and I'll tell you what you are. Tell me who you run with, and I'll tell you what you are. Now, that's not just true for young people, isn't it? That's, that's just true in general. And so this is what we know. The Bible teaches that bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so you have to choose wisely. So my prayer over the years has been that God would help me to associate with people who are ahead of me intellectually and morally and spiritually. You know, I, uh, Beth and I were just reminiscing recently. We, uh, we have a, a reunion with the members of our wedding party, and it's not just the wedding party, the guys who were my, my buddies in college, who I cultivated a relationship with, were the groomsmen in our wedding. And these five guys, about every five years or so, we get together at one of our homes somewhere in the country, and we just catch up and reminisce. We've, we've maintained this relationship all these years. And let me just describe these guys for you. One of them is a civil engineer who has worked for the state of Colorado for many years and, and been one of the leading engineers in that important state. Another is a mechanical engineer. He's had a very successful career in Indianapolis, working a lot of those years with Eli Lilly as an engineer. Another is a pastor, a Lutheran pastor, who has served the church faithfully for many decades. Great guy. Another is a physician. He is, a, he is a, an orthopedic surgeon and has a wonderful practice in Illinois. And, and the last guy is, is also a physician. He's a teaching physician at the medical school at the University of North Carolina. All of these guys, very accomplished, very smart, smarter than me. Every one of them smarter than me, better than me, higher than me. Now listen, when I got to, got to the university, here's thousands of people on the campus, and you go into this freshman dorm, and here are, here are hundreds and hundreds of perfect strangers. You don't know any of these people. And so you start choosing who your friends are going to be. And so even at that age, when I'm 18 years old, I'm gravitating, I'm moving toward people that I know are just a little bit further along than me. So I hook up with folks who are like that. It's, it's, just, it's just smart, surrounded by people of greater stature. I, I think about George and Hannah Miley, whom Beth and I met many years ago. Wonderful, precious Christian leaders, missionaries have served the church in dramatic ways around the world. And, and the way that their lives have helped inform me and therefore us and our mission philosophy here at Union Chapel, just an incredible, an incredible mentor in our lives. And just to stay connected and make sure you're getting their monthly newsletter and hearing what they're having to say about the world and about life. It's, it's just so important to cultivate those kind of things. I, I was reminiscing about Maxie Dunham, Dr. Dunham, uh, as a United Methodist pastor, very good friend, someone that I sit at his feet and I pay attention to what he has to say. Uh, he edited the, the devotional, The Upper Room. There are people in this room, Dave, if I say, how many of you have read an edition of The Upper Room devotional? Lots of you would say, I've, I've seen that. He edited that for many years. Then he was the president of Asbury Theological Seminary. Today in his retirement, he's doing amazing work with renewal efforts around the church. Tomorrow night, I'll be on a conference call about 15 people. Dr. Dunham will be on the conference call. We'll be talking about some of the challenges in our denomination. These are the kind of people you want to just, you want to get, just get up close to 
until they push you away. You just get, get close until they say, that's enough. And then you, then you back up a little bit and then you get a little bit closer. You just press in because it's smart. It's wise to associate with people of great stature. It matters. Now, I, look, I have, I have other associations where, you know, it's break even, just like that. Uh, Beth and I are, are going to have lunch with our dearest friends in the world, Mark and Sheila Beeson. We, we have vacation together with our families and the, and the four of us for the last 33 summers, 33 years in a row we vacation with them. Now, why do we hang out with the Beesons? Because they're creative, they're bold, they're innovative, they're passionate about Jesus. Mark and Sheila pastor a very successful church in South Bend, Indiana. They're remarkable human beings. And we, and we intentionally hang out with people like that. That's what we do. Because it's smart. Let me ask you, are there, are there relationships in our lives that just pull from us? And we've got lots of those. So you've got you to keep it balanced. You've got to... You've gotta, you've gotta, but, but if you're only hanging out with people that, that take from you, that pull on you, that drag on you, then when you find yourself in a pit with a lion on a snowy day, you may not have the support and the resolve that you need in order to be successful. You okay with that? Look at some of these examples that we find in our text today. This Ben and I, I want to kind of focus on him, surrounded himself with great men, men that inspired him to greater service. For example, in verse 8, we read the story of, of Joshua Bashebeth, whom we shall refer to from this point on as JB. <laughs> Who slew 800 men at one time. Now, if you, can, you know, if you can look past the carnage of that, and again, we're, we're in the Bronze Age in the Middle East, 1000 BC. If you get, past, get past, past that part of it, imagine yourself if you're a warrior like Ben and I, and you come up on this battlefield, and oh, JB, everybody else has run from the enemy. 800 of the enemy have surrounded JB. He's on his own, and he wins the battle. What kind of impact is that going to have on you if you're a warrior? And you walk up on this battle scene, he's standing there, you know, and he's staggered a little bit, and his helmet's dented in, and his, and his, and his shield is completely broken, his sword's completely sheared off, and 800 of the enemy at his feet. Let me tell you what that's going to do to you if you're a warrior. It's going to inspire you. You're going to say, now that's a guy that I want to serve with. That's a guy that I want to associate with. That's a guy, that's a guy I want to go to battle with. And it inspires. There's another guy named Eleazar. We find him in verses 9 and 10. He had the same kind of moment. And it says that he clung to the sword so, so ferociously during the battle that they couldn't get his hand off the sword when it was over. I mean, when the, when the army finally came back to Eleazar's battlefield, the only thing they had to do was strip the dead and try to pry that boy's fingers off the sword. Now, if you're a warrior... What is that going to do for you? You're looking at this guy, and you can see four or five of the guys around him. He says, I can't, I can't get this sword out of my hand. I mean, you're going to swell with courage and boldness. That's what's going to happen to you. Another guy named Shama, I mentioned him, this three-point sermon, verse 12. Shama, I, I kind of get the impression that maybe Shama, this is his pea patch, this lentil field. And he's, he's been working this ground all year, and now it's harvest time, and the Philistines think they're just going to run, 
run them off and take the harvest away from him. And Shanna says, not, not on my watch. Now get my pea patch. <laughs> now, you know what the name Shama means? It means present. P-R-E-S-E-N-T. Present. Present and accounted for, sir. You've heard the old adage that 99% of life is just showing up. There's something to that, isn't there? I mean, just showing up. How many of you have ever been in a moment where you go, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to experience this. We all have, right? But it takes courage. And so you pull up your big boy pants or you know, hitch up your big girl skirt and you face into that and you do it because it's the right thing to do. And that's, that's what Shama is. He's just present. He's on duty. He's not AWOL. He's not, he's not frightened. He's not... He's, he's not cowardly, but he stands into the face of the challenge before him. Amazing recognition. Let me, just, uh, let me just give you this statement to say it another way. I'll put it up on the screen for you. The Lord's preparation of the person is in direct proportion to the person's willingness to be surrounded by great people. That's, that's the point I'm making. To the degree, to the proportion that you surround yourself with people of, of great stature is the degree to which you'll be ready if you find yourself in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. Now here's my second thought. On your outline it's this. Benaniah was actually prepared by lesser struggles. This is an important life lesson, friends. Prepared by lesser struggles. In verse 20 we find that Benaniah actually slew two lion-like men of Moab. Now, that's interesting. It may be a word picture, lion-like men. What does that mean? Maybe they were wild and ferocious. Maybe they had big hair, you know, big beards, big hair, looked like a lion. We don't know. Maybe uh, it's a, another connection, a tie to the next part of the verse, which is, and then he went into a pit with a lion on a snowy day. And so we know that these lesser struggles like this are part of Benaniah's experience. Now, here's the point I want to make. I'll put this on the screen. God will never lead you into a conflict that you're not prepared for. Now, I have to ask you, are you okay with that statement? Do you agree? God will never lead you into a conflict that you're not prepared for. And the reason I, I, can, I, I know that's true is because what kind of God would it be who would lead us into a conflict we're not prepared for? That wouldn't be a good God, would it? That'd be a vindictive God or an angry God or a nasty God. But instead, God won't lead us into a moment that we're not prepared for. He will, however, lead us into times of preparation for greater battles. Now let that soak in for a minute. This is the pattern in the life of a person who follows God. In this context, this is the pattern of the life of a warrior. The preparation, then the battle. First there's the schooling, then the examination. First there's the practice, and then there's the competition. This is, this is the way it goes. Any weightlifter will tell you that you lift increasingly heavy weights and it will build your muscles. Any in, uh, distance runner will tell you that if you run further and further in your distance that you will build endurance. That's the nature of it. And so God will actually allow 
things to come into our lives, and I'll use this kind of terminology, the devil to attack our lives at such a speed, at such a pace, that it will actually make us stronger. So what are you doing, God? Why is this happening to me? Why do I have to go through this? What is going on? And one of the lessons in there is that God is actually using this trial to prepare you for what's coming next. Today in in the, in the discipleship and followership of Jesus Christ in your life, today is always being used for preparation for what's coming tomorrow. God never wastes our pain. He never wastes our suffering. He never wastes our trials. He never wastes our confusion. He never wastes our doubt. He never wastes any of those circumstances in our lives that, that tend to threaten us. He never wastes them, but is constantly using them and causing them to build into us the kind of endurance and trust and faith that we will need when we find ourselves in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. This is really good preaching. I don't know. And let me just remind you, you know, the devil won't play fair. Not with you, not with me. Have you ever had one of those years when everything went wrong? Remember the six-year drought? (laughs) Remember that season of your life? Yeah, yeah, for, for those years, I went through hell in those years. Uh-huh. But what was God doing? He was producing in you the right stuff to prepare you for the influence he's called you to. This is hard to hear, but it's actually true. You know, it's the, it's the teenage girl whose parents decide they're going to uproot and move to another town. She, she loves her high school. She loves her friends, but, but they pull her out. And once they've relocated, then their marriage begins to come into crisis and, and daddy begins to leave. And so they, her parents get a divorce. And the first friend she makes in her new, new town, she walks away from her. And this, uh, this boy notices her because she's a cute little teenage girl And so he begins to date her, and after about three or four dates, he begins to say things like, you know, you're the prettiest thing I've ever seen, and you are so nice, and you are so beautiful. You know, I think I love you. And if you feel the same way about me as I do about you, then you'll go to bed with me. Now, you see, here's a a girl who finds herself in a pit with a lion on a snowy day, and she has to decide what's going to become of her. She's going to have to decide whether all these things that have been happening to her are actually designed to break her down and to compromise her life, or those things are actually been permitted by God to build in her the kind of character and endurance and trust that she needs. So now she's in the pit with a lion on a snowy day, and if she's not ready for that moment by the the previous lessons, then she's going to die. She's She's going to lose her way. And so what she can do and what this girl does in my story is she looks this boy in the eye and says, look, I stood up underneath it when my parents relocated me from my friends and my comforts. And I stood up underneath it when my daddy left me. And I stood up underneath it when my best friend here left me. And I'm going to stand up underneath this when you leave me because I need God in my life more than I need you in my life. And she has a victory in the pit. The The businessman who's in partnership with his best friend discovers that he has embezzled 
and absconded with about 70% of the assets of the business and disappeared. At the same time, he gets a notification in the mail that he's being sued by one of their, by one of their clients for a, a sum of money that he has no way of dealing with. When his wife finds out about it, that their assets are gone and her lifestyle is no longer possible, she says, forget you, and she leaves him. And he goes one, home one night and opens the top drawer and pulls out the gun and slides in the clip and the devil whispers into his head, just squeeze the trigger and all your problems are over. Now that man has a decision to make in a moment like that because he's tried to live virtuously and he's tried to live for God and he's, he's done his best to try to follow in the way. But now he finds himself in a horrible moment, in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. It, it doesn't get any worse. There he is. And in that moment, he has a decision to make. All these things have been allowed to come into my life, either to destroy me and corrupt me and lead me to, to, to my own suicide, or maybe God has allowed these things into my life to actually build my character and to enhance my faith and to, and to shape my endurance so that I can say in this moment, look, I, I, I've held up underneath it when my business partner partner left me and when my my money all fell out of my hands and when when my wife deserted me and I'm going to stand up underneath it now and so he takes the clip out of the gun and puts it back in the drawer and stands up straight and goes in and washes his face off and looks himself in the mirror and says before God I'm going to have victory in this pit I'm not going to give up I'm going to keep going forward Twenty-four years ago, my wife Beth was diagnosed with cancer, a cancer that her mother had died of when her mother was 39 years old. She had a first cousin who died at the age of 33. She had maternal aunts who died of the disease. A maternal grandmother died of the disease. Runs in the family. Beth was 35 years old and she was diagnosed with the disease. Three days later, we went in and had surgery, and then for the next year, we underwent chemotherapy and radiation treatment. Our boys were five years old and 12 years old at the time, and it was uh, in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. After her surgery, the pathology came back, and it wasn't good. She had, she had cancer cells in other parts of her body, and so the prognosis was very uncertain. I grabbed the oncologist at the end of the last treatment, the last chemotherapy treatment, and I, and I got him alone in the corner and got in his space and looked right in his eye and I said, what should I expect? I said, you tell me what to expect. And he said, no one knows what's going to happen. He said, I can tell you this, you should go live your life. And he said, and the chances are your wife will be alive in five years. He said, that's all I can give you. All right. In a pit with a lion on a snowy day. I've been there. And for me to stand up today and go, you know, you can, you can grow from lesser struggles. Yes, you can. 
God's at work in your life. I know you're in a pit, but God is with you. Be encouraged. If someone would have said these things, the things I'm saying to you today in that season of my life, I'm telling you right now, I would have punched you. I'm not fully formed yet. I... Then when you wake up, I say, well, you want to clarify what you were talking about there? Because I'm not getting it. I was reminiscing with a friend recently. We were talking about this, you know, because uh, we all go through stuff, right? We all have a story, every one of us. When I say in a pit with a lion on a snowy day, all of you go to that place that you've either been in your life or you are right now. Here's what I want to tell you. Not to dismiss your pain or your pit experience or to, or, to, or to underestimate the gravity of it. No, no. But rather to give you encouragement and to give you hope. Because what I can tell you is that we have discovered, Beth and I, that God is good and He is faithful and He is trustworthy. Even in the seasons of life when you can't track what God is doing, attempting to teach you, Tempting to tell you. Because when you're in a pit, it's dark there. And it's confusing there. How can you hear anything? It's just too hard. What I can tell you is that Almighty God is good and has, his, has your best interest in mind and that He will see you through. You know, tears come in the night. The promise is that joy will come in the morning. The light will shine again. You will pop through the other side. And what I can tell you today and it's hard, I know it's hard for some to hear. What I can tell you today is that this experience that we had with a life-threatening disease is actually one of the best things that ever happened to us. It's crazy. It's crazy talk. It's crazy. But God doesn't waste it. He never wastes our pain, our suffering. So he's with us, and he'll, he'll see us through. And if we'll allow those things to shape us, we'll keep leaning on him, he will see us through, and we'll be better for it. Last thought, we are then therefore matured in the valleys, matured in the valleys. And again, it's hard to hear this if you're in the valley. An elderly woman who had been through much hardship in her life, very difficult life, tough journey. If you, know, if you heard the story, you'd go, wow, that girl went through a lot. And one of her friends asked her when she was advanced in age, she said, I know the things you've been through in your life. How did you get through those difficult seasons of your life? And she smiled and said, I always rehearse this little line. I told, this was my internal speak. In the midst of all the darkness, she would say, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. And it's wisdom, isn't it? It really is true. Look at this statement. I'll put it on the screen for you. The valleys are always momentary and circumstantial. Now, again, you, gotta, you just have to let your mind stretch if you're hurting right now. But this is actually true. If you're on the mountaintop, let me tell you what that is. That's momentary and that's circumstantial. Because you won't stay up there. You may be in the best moment of your life right now. Couldn't be better. Couldn't be better. Everything's wonderful. Well, that won't last. <laughs> that's momentary. That's circumstantial. Now, celebrate it. Party on the mountain. Have a great time. Woohoo! God is good. And that's right. Wonderful. But listen to me. When you come down and you find yourself in the valley, in a, in a deep place, dark place, the same is true. It's temporary. 
and it's circumstantial. This too shall pass. Have an ear for that. Have an ear for it because it's true. It's absolutely true. God is good all the time and he is with us. So here's what we learn. You can't have victory without conflict. You can't be a great soldier if you never fight. You, you can't be a leader if you've never followed. You can't be courageous if you've never been faced with fear. And so all of this is about, is about trusting God and the work that he is doing in us to equip us for the influence he's called us to, the status that he has in mind for us. And so here we are. Let me tell you one more story. We'll be finished. This is from the life of C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was a, an Englishman and missionary to India about 100 years ago. He came home from India at the age of 55. His wife was sick, would ultimately die as a result of the illnesses that she carried from India. He was sick, physically sick, emotionally drained, spiritually, spiritually dry. The, the mission work that he had engaged in India for 20 years had only been moderately successful. I mean, he just, just losing his life in India, which is a hard, hard place to be, with very little to show for it. Very little. And so here he is. He returns to England, presuming he would never go to the mission field again. There in England at the age of 55, he was asked by the mission board to travel about the country, preach and teach and raise funds for the next generation of missionaries, which he agreed to do. But he was lonely and hurting and discouraged and questioning, is this it? Is this what I've come to? The end of my ministry, 55 years old. You know, I challenged the enemy in his home territory of India and I have nothing to show for it. And he said, God spoke to him in that very dark and deep place. He said, be faithful. Just two words, be faithful. And you know, C.T. Studd reports that strength began to return to his body. And as he went throughout England preaching and raising mission funds, God restored, revived his life, recovered his health a bit, uh, energized his spirit, and he was feeling stronger. He was battered, but victorious. Then God spoke to C.T. Studd again and said, I want you to go to Central Africa where there is no effective Christian witness taking place. No witness of Christ 100 years ago in Central Africa. And God said to C.T. Studd, I want you to go there. So C.T. Studd went to every mission agency in England at the time and they all turned him down. So you're too old, you're broken down, your time has passed, we're not going to sponsor you. No one would sponsor him or give him a medical pass. He was completely alone. And this is what C.T. Studd did. And, and this is his words. He said, I stood up under India. I've stood up under my wife's sickness. I've stood up under my own sickness. And I've stood up under this latest rejection. And I'll stand, stand up under this now. And this is what he did. He kissed his little ailing wife uh, goodbye, got on a boat headed for Central Africa, and did not return home for 12 years. The letters between C.T. and Priscilla Studd, while she lay sickening, told of a work in Africa that would stir your soul. We have these letters now documented from the history. Priscilla never complained, not once. And his, one of his letters to her from shipboard read, and I quote, My darling Priscilla, we shall end as we began, loving each other utterly and only less than we love Jesus Christ. 
God took that 55-year-old missionary, rejected by all the mission agencies, and used him for the next 23 years. Now listen to this. His ministry didn't begin until he was 55 and sick. And God used him for 25, 23 years to birth a revival in Central Africa that continues to this very day. You've heard this preacher describe to you the miracle work of God's grace in the continent of Africa in the last century. And we know that in the last hundred years, Africa a hundred years ago was 4% Christian. And today it's over 50% Christian. Over 400 million Africans have come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ that had begun with the seeds of a missionary 55 years old and a has-been. Victory in the pit. That's victory in the pit. So listen, it's in a pit with a lion on a snowy day that God separates the men from the boys, the women from the girls. Mm -hmm. This is where God finds out who he can trust with genuine ministry. Now listen to me. People in this room today, you've been told you're not smart enough, you're not, you're not handsome enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not resourceful enough, you don't have what it takes. Some of you have been told this your whole life. You've been through hardship, hardship and heartache and crisis and difficulty. You've been, you've been through difficult moments in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. Now listen to me. The message that some of the voices in your head have been telling you is that you're all washed up, you're all used up, you are not valuable, God doesn't need you, God wouldn't use you if he could because you just don't have what it takes. And I'm here to tell you that God is not finished with you. And if you, if you will intentionally surround yourselves with people of stature, just like showing up in this room today, some of you came in here today because you know when you come to this place and you hang out with people at Union Chapel that it emboldens your life. It encourages your faith. You walk out of here feeling better about yourself than when you came in. There's a reason for that. That's not an accident. That's how it works. That's why you want to hang. That's why it's important to be in the community. So when you hear a precious couple say, you know, small groups, they changed my life. Give an ear to that. Hang out with people of stature. And then hear the pastor give you encouragement when he says, you can learn from lesser struggles. You can grow from those. They're not there to destroy you. They're there to build you. They're not there to kill you. They're there to equip you, prepare you for what God has left next in your life. And these lessons can be learned even in the valleys. Listen, let me remind you, friends, the valleys, that's where the flowers grow. That's where good things are happening ultimately in your life. So you be encouraged today. Let, let me just, the last verse, the last phrase in our text today, you didn't even catch it. This Ben and I, you know, I bet, here's what I think about Ben and I. I think he's just average. He wasn't one of the three. He wasn't one of the 30. He wasn't really notable. But now we see him, you know, he's inspired and built up by lesser struggles. And he comes to this place and David says, you know, I've been watching you. I noticed you. In fact, I'm so impressed with you that I'm going to make you the captain of my personal bodyguard. Now, that's some status right there, friends. That's some influence. And that's what David did with him. And I think that's the word of God for us today. You may be in a pit with a lion on a snowy day, but God has plans for you.
and he wants to use you. So you be encouraged and you be filled with hope that God is not done with you yet. All right? Did you hear it? Yes? Nod your head like you heard something that got you today. All right. Praise God. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, we pause this morning to thank you for this wonderful story. Thank you for these men, these mighty men of virtue and courage. They really do inspire. And so, Lord, help us to learn these lessons and to make the application because we know you are not finished with us. So fill us with your courage. Help us to be brave. Help us to be bold, even in the face of difficult challenges. Lord, thank you for being with us no matter what. We pray in Jesus' name. The people said.